you would uh, pray with me before we open God's word together, but let's pray together first. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for uh, the gift of your word, what it teaches us, what it shows us, the way it points us to you. We thank you for preserving and keeping it for us. We thank you that uh, we can know you more fully by opening your word and coming to it and hearing the, the proclamation of your truth. And so we pray this morning that as we do so, that you would move in this place, that your spirit would move and lead and guide and teach us. Uh, that you would show us exactly what you want us to see. We just confess that uh, as we open your word, without you moving and guiding and leading in this time, we are hopelessly lost. And so we pray that you would just lead us in our time here this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I don't know <clears throat> how many of you have ever seen uh, ESPN sports program. If you, you follow sports at all, ESPN has these films that they've been doing the last few years called 30 for 30, and it started a couple years ago because it was their 30th anniversary, and so they made these short documentaries. They're like an hour long on big sports stories that had happened the last couple of years, and uh, normally I don't really care that much about watching those kind of things, but I saw a couple of them, and it kind of drew me in because the, the, I am now 37 years old, and so ESPN's been around for just over 30 years, and so I, I remember just about everything that the movies had go, and a lot of the things happened when I was a kid, and so kind of has nostalgia with it, and I remember watching these different sporting events, and so I kind of got sucked in, and I started to watch a lot of those, and, and probably my favorite of all the ones I've seen is there's one on the uh, Dream Team, and if you know what the Dream Team is, it was a basketball team in 1992 that went to the Olympics. It was the first time the U.S. used professional athletes in Olympic sports, first time they were allowed to do so. And so that team was probably uh, 10 of the guys on that team, 10 of the 12 guys are on the top 50 list of all-time greats in basketball. And so you're talking about the, the, literally the dream team, maybe the best team ever put together. And they went to the Olympics and they beat everybody like by 60 or 70 points. They just destroyed everybody. And so kind of anticlimactic when they actually got to the Olympics. But when I watched the thing, what I remembered is what stood out to me was they were talking about what would happen in practice. You put together the 10 best players on the planet together and they get heated and they start practicing together. And there was one story that came up that said one day they got really heated and they started getting after it. And on one team was Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, two of top 10 all-time players. And then on the other team was the young guy who was just coming up, Michael Jordan. Uh, if, if you're not aware who Michael Jordan is... He is the greatest basketball player who ever lived. And if you don't realize that, then you're wrong, and that's okay. But Michael Jordan's the greatest player who's ever lived. And so he's on one team, and you've got Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and all these other guys on the other team. And so the story goes, they started to play, and things started to get heated in the scrimmage. And so, you know, you can imagine the greatest players there used to be in the guy on their team. This all starts to go down. And so the story goes that uh, I think Jordan lost the first game, and then he got really upset, and then he won the next game. And then he won the next game, and then he won the next game, and then he won the next game, and then it was over. And it was kind of like Jordan just decided he was taking over. And that's what happens when you're the best player who's ever lived. You do that. And so the story goes in the locker room afterwards, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, both reigning MVPs in recent years, are sitting there. And they said Jordan walked into the locker room, and he looked at both of them, and he said, there's a new sheriff in town. And he looked at both of them, and they turned around and walked off. And he said at first they were kind of upset, but then Magic Johnson turns to Larry Bird, and he goes, you know what, he's right. And he said, yeah, you're right, he is right. And they started laughing and kind of the joke. And so the joke goes, but when you think about it, 1992, Michael Jordan had won one championship. He was still a young guy, but he was the best. He was the best and everybody knew it. And he proved it. He proved it in this practice with the very elite best of the best. But he hadn't won the championships yet. Now, if you know anything about Michael Jordan, he would go on to win six. Six out of seven years. And the only reason it wasn't seven out of seven years is he's 
started to go play baseball for a little while. But it would have been seven out of seven years. And so he did get the championships later. And so I was thinking about this picture of everybody knew Jordan was it. They knew he was the best. But the championships hadn't come yet. And so I was thinking about that with relation to what we talked about last week in Titus chapter 2. And we're going to be in Titus today. We're really going to be looking at chapter 3. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, page 647 is where we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. But what we talked about last week is how in a lot of ways that we, we live in this time where we say it's the already but not yet. Right? Michael Jordan was already the best player. He hadn't won all the championships yet. But they were going to come. Right? We live in this time in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 where it says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Jesus has come and he lived and he died and he lived the perfect life and he took our sins on himself. He paid for our debt and then he defeated death when he rose again from the grave. He has won already. He's defeated it. That already has happened and has taken place. And then verse 12 in Titus 2 tells us that we're to live uh, in this day renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's where we are now. And then verse 13 is the not yet. Verse 13 says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we live in a time where Jesus has come and God has won and Jesus is reigning. He's defeated sin and death by coming down into the world and doing it and it's finished and it's over and he's done it and he's reigning. But yet he's allowed us for a time to stay in this world that is still sinful and broken and fallen. And we're waiting for his return, the not yet. And when he returns, he's going to set all things right and make all things as they should be. But it is certain because of what he's already done when he came. And so we often talk of it in those terms, the already and the not yet. And so last week as we were talking about that, we then said, well, how are we to live given that that's where we are? That Jesus has already won, but he hasn't returned yet, and we're in the in-between. We're in the age in-between that. So what are we to do? And we talked about ways that we miss it, what we're not to be about. And we talked about how we can mistake God's uh, wonderful graciousness towards us and trample on his grace and say it's all grace and now we can do whatever we want. The Bible says that is not the case. We're to live lives that reflect what God has done for us. And that's really where we landed last week, that we're not to just trample on his grace. We're not to become legalistic, moralistic people that walk around getting in people's face and stirring up division that seems to be going on here in Titus. We're not to do that, but we're to live lives that reflect what God has done for us. And so we talked about how we're to love people and we're to be kind and gracious. We're to meet people where they are. We're to be uh, uh, moving with just complete patience in all our relationships and what that looks like. And I got to the end last week and we painted that picture. And then we said this week we're going to finish that and talk about the power in which we do that. And then why we should live expectantly because of that. And that's where we're going today. When we live in this time, why we should be expectant and why we should be doing this. Because the truth is it's easy for us to gather together on a Sunday morning where most people are going to be kind to you. Hopefully they're kind to you and we gather together and it's an encouraging time and, and we're encouraging one another and the things that are going on. And it's easy to say, let's go out in the world and be kind and patient and long suffering and meet people where they are and love them the way Jesus loved us. It's another thing to get up on Monday morning and go do it. It's another thing when you walk into work and your boss is really rude to you or you go to a job that you really don't like 
or whatever's going on in your life and you wake up and it's not so easy. It's easy on Sunday morning to go, yeah, we should love everybody. That's great. And then we walk out into the world and we actually are supposed to do it. And then it becomes a little more difficult. And so I want us to think about today the power in which we live out what God is calling us to. Because the already and not yet kind of helps point us to that and what that looks like. And so that's what I want us to think about today. The power in which we live this out. And then secondly, when we look at that, why we sh- that should point us to live lives that are expectant of God doing great things. Because when we see the power in which we're to live this out, it would lead us to believe that we should be expectant of seeing God move. And so that's what I want us to look at. And so we're going to do it looking at Titus chapter 3. We're really going to focus in on verses 4 through 8 this morning. And I mentioned this last week, and I'm excited to get to it. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And so I love that we get to spend time in this. And so Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. And so let's read that together, and then we'll jump in and look at this idea of the power in which we are to live this out. And so verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so we're just going to stop there for a second. And I want us to think about this picture, this question of what is the power that we're to live out what we've been called to be in Christ. How are we to do that? And and when we think about it, the question, uh, I I would say the answer is the answer also to the same, uh, the same answer to a different question as well. The question of uh, how are you saved or how did you become to be saved? And I want you to look at what it says in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, right? So when Jesus showed up, it says verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to think about that for just a second. And the question becomes, why did you confess that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior, I'm in need of Jesus? If you have done that and you put your faith in Christ and you now would claim to be a Christian, if it, why did you do that? How did that happen? And the answer it tells us right there is he saved us not because of anything in you or anything that you had done, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the picture that is there and that forms when you read this and you put it all together and what he's saying is the reason that you came to faith is the Holy Spirit moved in your life and He brought your dead, sinful heart to life and then you saw Jesus and He said, Yes, I need Jesus. The Holy Spirit moved in and started to do a work in you that you would then profess faith and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how it happened. When I asked that question of how did that happen, why did you put your faith in Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit moved in you and brought your dead, sinful heart to life. And you even see that, you see that so clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. You see it right here. This, this passage is very similar to Ephesians chapter 2. And you look here in verse 3 because he tells us what we were like before the Holy Spirit came and moved in in our life and began to do this work. He says we were ourselves foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, 
pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's not a pretty picture. That's what it looks like to be spiritually dead, to be all about your own self, to be uh, self-centered and selfish and all I care about is me. You're completely opposed to God apart from the Holy Spirit regenerating you and then you putting your faith in Christ. It's an ugly picture of who we are apart from the grace of God. And so oftentimes when we, when we say that, uh, that will lead us to say things like, and I think this is true biblically, we cannot please God apart from faith in Christ. We cannot uh, please God apart from faith. And people say, well, wait a second, that seems like a hyperbole, maybe a little bit. Right? So you can't do anything that pleases God apart from moving in faith. And you say, whoa, wait a second, what about, this is often the common objection. Maybe you have this objection. That's okay, that's why we're talking about it and, and thinking about it for a second. You say, well, what about the doctor who is an atheist who's working to uh, eradicate some disease and he comes up with some great breakthrough and it benefits lots and lots of people? Doesn't that please God? And it's like, well, yes, God is pleased that people are being helped and yes, God is pleased and he wants to see those things happen. But is the guy himself who's made this discovery pleasing God as an atheist? And the, and the biblical answer would be no, he's not. And sometimes people go, oh, wait a second. That sounds really harsh. What are you talking about? How is that not the case? He's doing a good thing. And the answer goes back to what we often say here and we talk about a lot. That sin is ignoring God and the world he created. That's what sin is. We're not giving the proper deference to God. And when we do that, we're not pleasing God because we're not putting him in his rightful place. We're putting other things in his rightful place. For example... I'm a wonderful scientist and brilliant and I've done all these great things and I say I did all this because I'm brilliant and wonderful and I came up with this. I'm not giving the pro- proper credit to God and so therefore it's not pleasing to God. Do you follow that? That's, that's the picture that we see in Scripture. We cannot please God apart from faith. And so the answer to that, the reason for that is because what are we supposed to be doing as people? What were we made for? Were we made to be in a relationship with God and we were made to glorify Him? Glorify means reflect back who God is. And if I say, I did this in my own power, I am not reflecting back who God is. I'm saying, I'm the sinner. And I did it. And so therefore, it's not pleasing to God. Paul would summarize it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so if I'm doing great things, but I'm not doing it for God's glory, I'm doing it for my glory, it's not pleasing to God. And so there's this picture here of what that looks like. And so when we start to think about how do we do good works and the power in which we do good works, it's always going to be through faith and what God has done for us, making much of him, not making much of me. Otherwise, we're missing it. And so when we think about that, right, I come to faith, and even the way I came to faith, the only way myself is a dead sinful, broken heart comes to faith is the Holy Spirit moves in my life and he brings me to life and then I see my need. And the only way I see that is because he's moved in me, regenerated my heart, shown me who Christ is, and then I say yes. And it's him moving in me that would would have that happen. And so the only way I can do good works, the only way I can come to faith is the God moving and doing this work. Doing a miracle of bringing me to life. And so I want us to think about the power in which we now live that out. That's how we come to faith. But even how we begin to live out what God's called us to. And so look at verses 4 to 6 all together there. Take all that together. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And he saved us not because of works done for us in righteousness. 
but because of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. And he says, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You're regenerated, you're brought to life, and then renewal comes through the Holy Spirit. And then he says, whom he poured out richly, on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Right? And he says, so he's poured out richly on you, whom he's poured out richly on you. And you say, well, who's he talking about in verse 6 when you look at that? Whom he poured out richly on us through what Jesus has done. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is now given to you richly. Right? When you go and you look at that word and you think about what that means, it means abundantly. That God has poured his Spirit out abundantly on you because of what Jesus has done for you. And he begins to take up residence and to come in and to think about it. And I want you just to think about what this means for just a second. You know, I read the Paul's prayer in Ephesians uh, chapter 3 this morning as we started. And I can't help but think as we try to even get our minds around what this is saying, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out abundantly on you. I can't help but think to, I want to pray what Paul prays when he says that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Because I'm going to just tell you as we think on this, we can't comprehend this completely. There's no way. And I want you to think about why and just try to at least scratch the surface on what this is saying. That God has poured out abundantly His Spirit into you. Through what Jesus has done. And when I think about that, I have to think visually different things. Uh, There's a song I like a lot, and there's a line in it that says, talking about God, His love is like a drop in the ocean. And I start to think about that picture, that paints a picture to me. Uh, I like the ocean a lot. I like to go to the beach. I don't really like the sand or anything. I just like how big it is and the sound. and I like to go swimming in the ocean and float in it. Just, Just swim out like... 30 or 40 yards and just float there, especially when there's big waves, right? Because it starts to just bob you around. And and if you look away from the shore and you look out at the water, and that's all you see in every direction, you can't see anything else, and you start to get an idea of how small you are and how big God is. And you're bobbing. You can't control it. You're going up and down with the waves. There's nothing you can do about it. And then I start to think about that line. His love is like a drop in the ocean. The love of God that I understand that I'm intellectually getting is like a drop in the ocean of who he is. And I start to go, oh, that kind of just settles on me. And I start to think about the God who created all of this, who spoke it into existence, that holds it together by the power of his word. He is the one that did it. And I start to get the immensity of who God is. But then take that a step further. Maybe you've heard this analogy before. A drop in the ocean is like our planet among the planets of the galaxy. Think about that for a second. A drop in the ocean is like the earth in all the planets that God holds together. And you start to get an idea of how small you are and how big God is. And I start to think about that picture and I start to think about what God's saying, what he's telling us here, that I have poured out abundantly my spirit into you through what Jesus has done for you. And I go, I can't even fathom that. The spirit of the God that holds all those things together has now come and taken up residence inside of me. He's been poured abundantly into me. I go, I can't even begin to fathom that. That that is the case. That that is the truth. But when I start to think about it and I put it in those terms, then suddenly I think about what Jesus says in John chapter 16. The night before he would die in the upper room with the disciples, he tells them, hey, I'm going away. I'm going to die. And then he says, and oh, by the way, it's going to be better for you. And you go, what? You're reading that along. You go, what? He says, it's going to be better for you. Think about what they've just seen. 
Jesus raising people from the dead, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, doing everything in perfect grace and truth. And he says, oh, by the way, it's going to be better because I'm leaving. And you go, what are you talking about? What in the world is he saying? And he says, it'll be better for you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. When I go, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you my spirit and I'm going to come take up residence inside of you. And so it's going to be better for you. And you go, better than having Jesus next to you is having God's spirit poured out abundantly in you. And you start to think about what that means. The picture of what that is saying. The power that God is working in you. And so when we start to talk about the power in which we're to live out what we're called to be, to love people and care for people, that's the power. The power of the very living God of the universe taking up resonance, being poured into you abundantly. And so hopefully as I pose this next question, you already see where I'm going and you're starting to make the connection. Why should we live expectantly to see God move in great ways? Because he's just poured his spirit out abundantly on you. And you start to go, whoa, wait a second. Think about the picture of what that is. And so I want you to consider this and just try to grasp this with me. This is why this is like my favorite passage. This is why I go back to this all the time. And it's in verse 5. Look at what he says again in verse 5 for just a second. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it says there right in the middle of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration. And I start to think about that picture of what that means. When you go and you look at that word, it means palagenesia, that's the Greek word. And what it means is restoring all things uh, to their pristine state. How they were meant to be before sin. Before there were any issues or any problems. Restoring it back to the way it was meant to be. And I start to think about that in terms of... uh, I am sinful and I am cut off from God because of my sin, but Jesus has come and he's restoring my relationship with God through what he's done. He's restoring it to the way it was meant to be that I now have communion with God because of Jesus. And it's by no doing of my own. It's completely by his grace and what he's done for me. And I'm overwhelmed with that thought. But then there's another verse, one other time in the New Testament where that word regeneration is used. And it's in Matthew chapter 19. If you have your Bible, if you'd turn there, Matthew chapter 19. I'm just going to read one verse. If you've got the Pew Bible, it's page 535. So you can cheat. You can get right to it quickly. If you, the sword drill you win with the Pew Bible, because you got the page number. 535, go. No one raised their hands. Oh, I was just going to say who grew up like in a Baptist church. We're going, got it. I got it right here. It was me. I got it. I used to do that. I'm not making fun of the Baptist church. I used to do that when I was a little kid, so... 535, right? And so he says, let me just set the scene as you're turning there. Rich young rulers just come to Jesus. He's asking them questions. What do I do to be saved? I've kept all the law. I've done everything. He says, well, sell your stuff and follow me. And it says he goes away sad. And then Peter pipes, typical Peter. Well, we sold everything and followed you. What are we going to get? Right? That's that's his question. Typical Peter, right? What do we get out of this? And so this is Jesus' answer to Peter. It's in verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. Truly, truly, I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so there's a lot there, but I'm leaving a lot out. I want to focus in on one thing in this verse. When he says that and what he's talking about, what is Jesus talking about when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. 
He's talking about the same thing that Paul's talking about in Titus 2.13 when he says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming. Right? So Peter says, what are we going to get? And he says, well, when I return and I set all things right, this is what it's going to look like. But here's what I want you to, to focus in on. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world. If you're, if you're reading the Pew Bibles, there's a footnote there. It's two. And you look down at the bottom and it tells you, what does it say? It says, in the Greek, that means in the regeneration. Palagenesia. Right? And so the connection I want you to see and I want you to think about when we ask the question, why should we live expectantly of God doing great things? In that passage there, it says, in the regeneration, Jesus says, when I return and I sit on my glorious throne, all things, all the cosmos are going to be set right. Everything is going to be put to its original, perfect, pristine condition. No more crying, no more tears. Beautiful picture. He's going to be there our glorious King reigning with us in glory, all things set right. And he says, in the regeneration, this is going to happen. Pala Genesia, in the new world, in the regeneration. And so when I think about that picture, I want you to make this connection. What Paul says in Titus chapter 3 is what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. He's regenerating, remaking you right now. The same power that is going to return with complete and total glory to renew all of the cosmos is, is at work in you right now. The, the power that is going to redo all of it is already taking up residence in you. When you think about what that means, the picture of what that looks like, the power that has been poured abundantly into your life through what Jesus has done for you. And I'm overwhelmed when I think about that. Now, I'm a nerd, and so I went and got a t-shirt that has the Greek and it has that word on it. And I wear it, and the reason I wear it is so people will ask me what it means. <laughs> what does your shirt say? Well, that's Greek. Well, what does it mean? Do you really want to know? I go, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Like, I'm just waiting for him to go, well, the long one would be okay. And then I'm like, all right, here it is. And I start to tell him about regeneration of all your hopes and dreams and everything Jesus is going to do. And he's already doing it in you when you put your faith right now. And so when we, we think about that picture of what that means, the power of the God of the universe is on the move, regenerating his creation, and he's already started. And he's already at work, and he's already poured it out abundantly into your life, and he wants to work in and through you for his great uh, redemption purposes. And so when I start to think about that picture, and as we, we, we end up with Titus here, look at what he says in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Right? He ends a lot of his letters this way, hits on some very practical things. Don't be unfruitful. We need to take care of these needs. But I want you to think about that in a bigger context. Teach our people to devote themselves to good works and not to be unfruitful. Think about that. If you have the power of the God of the universe poured into you abundantly, is there any reason for you to be unfruitful? And the picture that's there, I have poured into you abundantly. Don't be unfruitful. Devote yourself to good works. Make much of who God is and what he's done. And so when I start to think about that and we end 
in Titus. There's a lot of very practical wisdom of what it looks like to be a healthy church. Sound doctrine, have good leadership, elders that can teach and correct and rebuke, help one another in walking that out, live it out to the world. But then you see all of that, and he says, and the reason they do all that is because the God has poured abundantly into you in his spirit through what Jesus has done for us. And so it's just some very practical application as we end and as we think about this. I just want to pose this question to you, to us as a body together. Is there anything that we can dream up for God's glory that is too big for the power that is work within us? It's not possible. The power of the God that holds all things together has poured abundantly into this place and to you through what Jesus has done. There's nothing that we can't think of for his glory that's too big for him. In fact, we often go to the other side. Oh, that don't overwork. It's like, Jesus, it's like God's going, are you serious? I have poured my spirit abundantly in you. What could be too big? What could we ever come up with that he'd go, I can't do that. It's just nothing. And so we need to think big on what God's doing. It's his power and for his glory. It's not about us, but it's about him. But there's nothing that we can think of that's too big. And so when you talk to, as you talk to friends or neighbors or families and you think that God is living and active and his spirit is moving and he's going out and he's doing these things and he's at work in you and it's the same power that's going to remake all things, what are you afraid of to open your mouth and talk about Jesus? It's insane when you think about it. Oh, well, they might not, they might not what? God might not show up and do what he does. No, he will, and he does. And so often we're afraid, and we go, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to work. But when we see the, the, the glory at which he is working and what he's active and seeking to do, how can we be settling for anything less than being so excited about going out and pointing to who he is? And so as we end Titus, as we think about all the things that we're called to do to be a healthy church, let that be over what we're talking about. The great power and glory that God is moving for his glory. He's going to regenerate all things. And he lovingly pours himself into us so we can begin to help him and work in that and he can work through us. What a great privilege. And it's all because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so it's all about him and we get to make much of him. And so as we end Titus, let that be our prayer. What can we do? How big can we dream that see God show up and work in and through us in his mighty spirit? And so let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this beautiful, beautiful picture. I thank you for your word. I thank you most of all that it points us more clearly to who you are. And what you've done in our lives, we thank you that uh, it's through your mercy. It's not by our works. It's not by what we do, but what you have done for us. And that you want to do great things in and through us by your spirit. And we thank you for that. I pray we'd be ever more sensitive to your spirit's leading in every area of our lives. That we would seek to follow you wherever that may be. We just pray that you would have your way with us. And that we'd be quick to follow you in all things. We thank you, thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.